way of Will John. Guys, what's going on? We are back with a very special guest, Vicky Ward. Uh, is it cool if I say your full name? Can I say your full name? It's pretty cool. Of course. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. I mean, you know, I don't. Some people like people call me Will John. I actually like my full name, which is William Oluremi John. Uh, so Victoria Penelope Jane Ward. Uh, a British-born American author, investigative journalist, editor-at-large, and television commentator. She was a senior reporter at CNN and a former magazine and newspaper editor who has been featured in the New York Times bestseller list. Vicky, thank you for being here. How's it going? Thanks very much for having me. Now, do I call you Will or William after that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you can call me Will. Okay. It's fine. Yeah. Thank you, Will. Uh, yeah. I appreciate uh -huh. you having you having me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like I said before, we were on air here. I have been doing a very deep dive into all the things that you have. I guess not all the things because you've been a journalist for some time now, but uh, so many fascinating subjects. Given what we have today, I thought we're going to talk a little bit about Ukraine. I read an article that you wrote uh, or you summarized a conversation that you had had on the Ukraine-Russia war. Now it's no longer just a crisis, it's a, a, a war. And uh, then obviously you have successfully uncovered, I should say, uh, a whole lot on the epstein Ghislaine maxwell saga. And so the idea is that we can get you know, into both of those. But before we get into that, why don't you just let us know, obviously you read your intro and everything, what uh, kind of drove you to be the journalist that you are today? I'm just personally curious <laughs> how you got to be <laughs> this. Well, um, so I've always loved reading and writing. I was an English lit major at Cambridge University uh, in England. But to be honest, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and... Uh, at the time that I was graduating, believe it or not, investment banking was the cool thing. So it feels mm. weird saying that now. <laughs> this is 30 years ago. You know, all my friends wanted to be investment banking, bankers. And what I realized, uh, you know, my father was an investment banker. But what I realized when I applied to all these different banks, which my dad told me was a really stupid idea, um, was that... <clears throat> I, I would have been a terrible investment banker. And um, I then thought, well, maybe I wanted to be a lawyer. And my father said, you know what? You're just procrastinating. So I'm certainly not going to help you financially with law school because I think that, you know, you're just putting off the inevitable. And he said, you always like to write. So why don't you just go and do it? And, um, you know, it's one thing to say that. Another thing to then make a, a living and a career out of it. But what I did find was that on top of really loving to write and to read and to learn is that I, you know, I'm a very social person and I'm a very curious person. And I think that the combination of all of that um, makes you a very good reporter because you sort of need, you need to, I think, to be a really good journalist, you need to believe that everybody you meet has a really interesting story to tell and in some cases many cases they don't know what that story is and the job of a really good reporter is to listen and to find a way to get it out of them and I think that I was very lucky in some ways to train 
in England, which is where I grew up, uh, before coming to the States uh, in my late 20s, because the way that the British train their journalists is, you know, they, they hire quite a few graduates. Um, they don't give them jobs. They deliberately sort of pay them freelance retainer. And it's like a competition. They send you out at night and they can send you to the to, to Westminster, to the Houses of Parliament. They could send you to a book party. They could send you to a theatre opening. But you have to come back with a story and put it in the paper the next day. And, and you know that you're up against all these other people who are in different places, all doing the same thing. What it teaches you to do, frankly, is walk into a room full of strangers and find a story. And that's... That is much harder than covering a train crash or something like that because it 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 just asks more of you. And I think that um, you know I was very lucky. I ended up with a great mentor in England. I've been very lucky. You know I've had Tina Brown, you know a legend in the media industry, who's been a great mentor to me this side of the Atlantic. Um, and um, so I think, you know, the combination of I really, you know, I am this curious person who always wants to learn. I like talking to people. I like learning what their story is. I, let, I like them telling, telling the story. Um, I think the combination of all of that plus being blessed with some great mentors um, has kind of made me who I am today. Sure. Yeah, I... I... I find that that part really interesting because that is a skill to be able to walk up to someone and to pull it out. The part that struck me is the fact that some people don't know their own story, which is so, so true. You know, people tell themselves that we talk to ourselves. We are telling ourselves a story. But uh, it reminds me of a friend of mine who really wasn't doing much. But he I, I haven't seen this guy for, for quite some time. But he had this he had a coin collection, which on the surface sounds pretty boring. Right. But then if you kind of discovered more, you'd see that he had coins that you weren't supposed to have. He had Nazi coins that he had somehow wow. coming on. And there's a story there. Like, yes. what is this? How did you get that? Where do these come from? And, you know, and it's like, no, you don't really have something so boring. Yeah. Coin collection on its surface is, is boring. But if you can figure out how to dig the dirt out of it, then it then it is. And uh, speaking of that, it, it just was Really, really interesting. So I read the transcripts, and I know I said I wouldn't start on this, so I, I don't want to get too derailed. <laughs> but I did read the transcripts of the conversations you had had with uh, Glenn Maxwell in 2002, I believe, yeah. when you were still working at Vanity Fair. Yeah. Uh, and that was surreal. Uh, so uh, as uh, that conversation struck me as more surreal than the Epstein um, right. transcripts, just due to the the you know, trying to see how, how you were trying to display and how you're trying to come across and at the same time trying to, trying to pull. It, it was it, incredibly fascinating. So I, I guarantee you guys we will, we will get to that in just a second. But the Ukraine-Russia saga that's going on right now, I also read an article that you um, just put out. And you said you obviously have a, a unique viewpoint into all the things that are, that are going on right now. What do you see, I could ask, actually ask, Based on what you what you have and, and, and who you've been speaking to, what do you see playing out here over the course of these next few days? I mean, uh, as we're, today we're filming this, today is February 28th. The war has been going on for a little bit of, you know, uh, time. What what do you kind of expect to see 
play out if you could, you know, play that sort of. Oh my God. Well, I, you know, <sighs> the person who could tell you that would be a rich person if they were being paid for it. I mean, <sighs> I, look, it's very clear that Putin uh, underestimated um, the will um, of the Ukraine people, the, the will of uh, Vladimir Zelensky their president. I mean, it's amazing to think that this was a, this that man was sort of on the equivalent of Saturday Night Live, and oh, and he's. I mean, you know, there are going to be movies made about him and his extraordinary courage. Um, there are so many aspects of it that are, you know, the fact that uh, the West, I think, was very slow to rally round, but now, I mean, it's you know, when Zelensky spoke into that EU meeting and changed their minds, the fact that. You know what's about to happen to the world markets and what is happening as we speak is extraordinary given what we've you know whatever what 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 we've decided to do to the russian ruble um there there you know and then there's the you and i were just talking about the whole hacking aspect of it which is something that i have insight into because i did in 2016 write a deep dive uh, for Esquire magazine about cyber hacking and where America was then. And I interviewed um, a, a Russian expat, he's American, a guy called Dmitry Alperovich, who really was at the forefront then of um, fighting cyber hackers, albeit from the pr pr private sector. His company was then CrowdStrike. They were the ones who detected the Russians hacking um, the Democrat, uh, I think it was the DNC. Um, and in fact, there were two, two hacks, if I remember correctly, and he was the one who found the Russians. So I spent a lot of time with him, and I spent a lot of time uh, also in Washington with a woman called Phyllis Schneck, who was the uh, undersecretary uh, for cybersecurity at the Department of Homeland Security under President Obama. And she took me into this skiff secure room, no phones allowed, where I could actually see, you know, our cybersecurity teams at work fending off incoming hacks. And you saw how fragile the whole system was. She, Phyllis Schneck, was also in charge of sending out our response team when the uh, the grid, the electrical grid in Ukraine did go out, which people may forget now, because right now, thanks to all the um, hacking coming out of the West, basically against Russia for Ukraine, the Ukraine grid, electrical grid, which is incredibly important because it's freezing over there right now, if that were to go out, it would be a humanitarian disaster. It's holding Back, but but when Phyllis Schneck was at Homeland Security, there was an attack on the grid. It went down, and uh, she was responsible for getting an American cyber team out there to fix it very very quickly. It was a race against time. So I've you know I I've been thinking about her. I've been thinking about how different a uh, war a war like this looks now than it ever has in history, because the whole world in a way has gotten involved, whether it's because of money, 
you know, suddenly, you know, the sanctions, deciding to take Russia out of SWIFT, cutting the Russians out of airspace, um, you know, the decision by the EU to send in troops. I mean, it's it's really, and, and then all these disparate hacking groups um, working separately, but with sort of with common goals. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary, I mean, there's, I guess they, I've read, they call it the TikTok war, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. And it, it, it is, it's, it's pretty surreal. Just the entire, the entire thing, obviously, but what I have been amazed at, and I was in Crimea when it was still part of Ukraine playing football, uh, for just a couple of weeks. Um, and then it's just crazy to think, you know, shortly after I was there, boom, Russia, that's just, this is now, this is now Russia. And now, once again, the same thing is about to happen or has happened. The question that I'd put to you, if he fails, that's Putin yes. necessarily, if he fails, uh, that's, and, and like you said, he, he underestimated possibly the Ukrainian will and possibly even the response from the world on, uh, right. um, you know, on the well, response. Yes. And, you know, I think I wrote, you, you're talking, I've, I've published in the last month two columns, so uh, interviews with Lev Parnas, who's the Ukrainian-born American businessman who was uh, arrested during the Trump administration, but then became a whistleblower because it turned out he was part of the shadow foreign policy put in place by Trump, that Trump was then faced impeachment um, over, which was essentially, you know, working with Rudy Giuliani to force Ukraine um, <clears throat> and Zelensky, um, who's now trying to hold Kiev, to uh, announce an investigation into wrongdoing, alleged wrongdoing by the Bidens, by Hunter Biden. And, you know, the Ukraine refused to do that. But I, I got to know Lev Parnas um, during, I was at CNN, <clears throat> I got to know him uh, while I was reporting on that. And I know that he has very deep ties in Ukraine. So I wanted to get his thoughts on what was, you know, going on there. And, you know, three weeks ago, his view, and I think it, it was a common view, was that Putin would never actually invade because he didn't need to. Um, and he, he might go into, you know, Donbass, I think, you know, just two states that were easy to get. Um, but that Ukraine is so big that logistically it would be difficult to get to. And that by crippling the country economically, um, he'd already weakened the government sufficiently that, what, that all he needed to do was put in a pro-Russian government and it would be easy. Well... You know, fast forward three weeks, and I asked, I went back to Lev Parnas, and I said, well, hang on, so now he's he's going in. What happened? And uh, and what he said was, you know, he said, well, Putin was playing chess while everyone else has been playing checkers. And he said that, you know, the West just made it too easy for Putin. Sure. Um that, you know, it was now that he really did have um, a chance to go in and take Kiev and that, you know, that that's clearly what um, Putin initially, you know, when he started the invasion, it seemed clear that that's where he's headed. What's been a head scratcher since 
And, you know, I've told Lev to be on standby so we can do a third column about this. Is, is what did... So, you know, in some ways, the West played into Putin's hands and gave, you know, made him confident enough that he actually thought he could get away with a land occupation. It's not going so well for him. So what did Putin uh, get wrong and why? And obviously right now the situation is very precarious as you and I are talking. He's, you know, bringing out the nuclear option. Insane. Right. And I think that, well, the, the one bright thing, you know, we are, the question is, will will any of the oligarchs who he's surrounded by in his mountain cape, will they turn on him? So, sorry, could you even expand on that a little bit? Because it's it's my understanding, I mean, my understanding, my understanding isn't, isn't great, even though uh, uh, I've been, I spent a decent amount of time in, in Ukraine. Um, the oligarchs that could turn on him, I mean, I'm always fascinated by these Russian oligarchs because these are just, otherworldly, right. you know, beings yeah. in, in a certain sense. But if they turn on him, you say, I mean, I'm sure he has, trying to control and keep power in Russia is probably more complicated than he lets on when we all see him riding on a horse and acting like he has complete and total control over the entire country with no opposition whatsoever. I mean, certainly these guys are very powerful as well. So I didn't know. So it's, he has Russian oligarchs that are has, basically so he, helping him keep in power? No, or? so what he's done is take the oligarchs with him to his cave, his mountain cave, because, because he's afraid. He, he's taken them with him because, precisely because he can't run the risk that one of them stages a coup. Oh, um, wow. Well, he's okay. holed up in the, in, 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 in the cave. <sighs> but the issue is whether or not they'll... They will be so concerned that he's gone so mad. And, you know, to your point, if this, you know, this thing doesn't work and he potentially puts Russia into a worse place than it was at the end of the Cold War, you know, is it possible that the oligarchs will say, you know what, he, he's now more dangerous for us than mm-hmm. anybody else? I mean, you know, we, we don't know. I mean, we, it's an extraordinary story playing out in real time with a tragic, tragic loss of life um you know but i think you know it's it's amazing that two two weeks ago i think there was a there was a lot of feeling um even in in washington well this is sort of almost not not our problem well suddenly it's it's everybody's problem yeah yeah that is very true it did it did turn into a very much proper concern and there were guys uh in the u.s that were mentioning to me that yeah it wasn't getting so much play i'm obviously in zagreb croatia right now not too far uh from you know from ukraine i mean uh there's really i mean you could go through right hungary and uh more or less you know your your boom right there on the on the west side but um obviously if that if that all does play out the way that he wants it to what we just had a, a, a guest Morgan Morgan Wright come on he I, I asked him to speculate and but at this time Russia had not invaded to speculate what Putin's idea and plan was and he felt uh, based on all and he's obviously a cyber terrorism expert and that's mm-hmm. you know kind of his, his his realm and he 
has a good friend who's a general, who's a major general in the, the U.S. military. And he says that they talk about those things all the time when they go play golf and stuff. And he said the good old days of the Soviet Union and trying to kind of gain back some of that power was potentially an old uh, goal of his that he felt that maybe this could be a time to, to take, that the long standing game would be to slowly possibly take back more of what they had before yeah. under a very, very, you know, new, new regime under, under him. I mean, he yeah, yeah. came into power, obviously, when, when they fell, when the Soviet Union uh, had, had basically been crumbling and uh, now he could take it back. So I, I don't know whether or not that's, that's the, you know, the truth or not. I mean, we're obviously well, going to find that's out. That's certainly his rationale. But if it, you know, your original question, what happens if it doesn't work? He would have weakened Russia way. I mean, <laughs> he, I mean, Russia is now isolated. That's not from the yeah. Chinese, but, you know, they're isolated financially. You know, I don't know if you saw the photographs yesterday. They were all rushing to their ATMs because they're not going to be able to get money out of the banks. And, um, no, I know that. you know, so, so that's why I say that to you that the possibility of a coup from his own, from the oligarchs, because a man who becomes as desperate as Putin, who sort of then talks about nuclear options, you know, the oligarchs might, might just say enough. We'll just have right. to see. Yeah. Wow. Um, awesome. Well, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll play on that. Uh, we'll shift now to what you have dedicated a lot of time to, um, why don't you then just give us a good basis? Most everybody here has heard of Jeffrey Epstein, uh, and, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, if you haven't, I, you know, welcome to a very, very strange story. Um, but, uh, you have done a documentary. You've got a podcast series. You've written a number of articles, of which I've 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 read. So um, you must be one of the few experts on a subject that's very hard to research and very hard to get a whole lot of information, um, even for somebody like you. Uh, the general public is trying to understand this story, and that's why it's captured everybody. You know, the general consensus for most people who are just commonly thinking it: Epstein didn't kill himself. That's the you know, no one wants to believe that someone of that stature in, in, in nature could just uh, kill himself. I guess, obviously, you know, as a journalist, you have to have to look at all options there. Um, but uh, what do you understand of the entire Epstein saga? What, what do you make of it? What could you, if for someone who's just coming on to this, uh, what could you kind of give them as a synopsis of a story of a guy... <laughs> that we don't really know who he is. And I don't know if you have any answers to that. Well, so. so, you know, the story of Jeffrey Epstein is on one level very simple and on another level an extraordinarily complicated mystery that two and a half years after his mysterious death um, goes on. And so the simple narrative is that he was a sick man who um, had a perversion where he liked um, having sexualized massages with underage girls and that he preyed on these 
particularly vulnerable girls who would do it, who he would pay. And he got some of them to go and recruit other underage girls. Ghislaine Maxwell um, was the daughter of a very wealthy um, publishing magnate who also was a crook who died in very strange circumstances himself in 1991, which meant that when she met Jeffrey Epstein, she would have been <clears throat> in her 20s at the time. She had gone from being a very rich heiress who knew many, many important, powerful uh, people around the world to having no money. And um, so she stands currently convicted of being essentially Jeffrey Epstein's madam, as someone who, um, according to prosecutors, was pay was was paid thirty million dollars by Jeffrey Epstein, st stood by him through over ten years, even though Jeffrey Epstein didn't particularly treat her very well, um, to procure these young girls um, for him. And the, the picture that was presented during her trial by, by, by government prosecutors was that she did this in order to finance the lifestyle that she was used to. Now, that is the <clears throat> very nasty, simple, <laughs> simple story. And, 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 you know, Jeffrey Epstein went to jail once in 2009 uh, on state charges, two state charges um, of prostitution and, and in one case, underage prostitution, soliciting an underage prostitute. It turned out many, many years later, he was rearrested. There had been, had been a federal investigation that involved many, many more girls that had been hushed up sort of at the time. And when he was rearrested and put in jail, uh, in 2019, this was for a much more ser the serious offences of running a sex trafficking ring with these underage girls. He never got stand trial <clears throat> for those crimes because he died in jail, reportedly, according to the coroner, a suicide. And yet um, the circumstances were very, very odd. He was detained in what is supposed to be the most secure uh, prison facility in America. And yet the night that he died, the cameras weren't working. The guards had, were not there. <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, I don't even think that uh, it's questionable as to whether he should have been in solitary confinement, given that only days earlier he had been declared a suicide risk. So there were many problems hanging over, uh, well, many questions hanging over his death. But, so the story of the sex, the story of the sex mm -hmm. is relatively simple. Uh, what's more complicated is who was Jeffrey Epstein when he wasn't having sexualized massages with underage girls and that obviously is very very important because Jeffrey Epstein got
got very, very rich very suddenly. You know, he went he went from somebody who had a one bedroom apartment in New York in the nineteen eighties to by the mid nineteen nineties he had a plane. He had the biggest townhouse in Manhattan. He had an island in the Caribbean. He had um, a massive ranch in New Mexico. And he went from being, in the 1980s, he's someone who had been in finance, left Bear Stearns, then an investment bank under slightly murky circumstances. But he suddenly reinvented himself as this sort of Gatsby, great Gatsby figure who had all this money. And it's during this period, during the 1990s, when he meets Ghislaine Maxwell right after or around the time that her father dies and she's penniless and wants money. But it's around this time that he starts, as far as anyone knows, abusing underage girls. This was not something he was known to have done prior to amassing all this wealth and these enormous Shangri-Las. And so what nobody to this day really fully has been able to piece together is where, when we know, we know bits of it, is where all this money came from and secondly why why did jeffrey epstein this mysterious financier attract all these um really powerful men to his houses why did they all want to go for rides on his planes now and when I say men, I'm talking, yeah, everyone, he was at one point friends with Donald Trump. He, they fell out. He was at one point very close to Bill Clinton. Um, he had all these Nobel Prize scientists visiting yeah. him. Um, Bill Gates has been associated with him. The financier Leon Black has been associated with him. Leslie Wexner uh, said that he got, um, he was, he, he was, uh, at one point, Wexner, uh, Epstein's biggest client, and then uh, Wexner has said he since um, discovered that Epstein stole from him. I mean, the list, Prince Andrew, most recently, has had to settle um, a civil dispute uh, with, a, with, with a woman who claims that, she, that Epstein pimped her out to, to him. He's, you know, the, the settlement means that She's no longer making that allegation. He's uh, he's no longer talking about her. Um, no, certainly not admitting to that allegation. But the quet, but it's sort of like two and a half years after Jeffrey Epstein's death. The list of prominent, powerful men who are either losing their jobs, like Jess Staley, who run, who did run until very recently, Barclays Bank in England, had to step okay. down from his job. You know, what on earth were all these guys doing floating around Jeffrey Epstein? And it's not, it would be, the, the obvious answer um, is girls, but it isn't just girls. 
it's right. it's it's clearly something to do with money. We know that Leon Black, who had to step down from running Apollo, one of the biggest private equity firms in the world, um, did so after an in- independent investigation found that he had paid Jeffrey Epstein $160 million for tax advice. I mean, that's an extraordinary amount of money to pay. You know, there are, there are law firms that are set up just to give people like Leon Black tax advice. And yet Leon Black goes, went to see a guy who had worked for an investment bank once for seven years and paid him $160 million for tax advice. That is just unbelievable. Bill Gates has said that he went to see Jeffrey Epstein because he believed that Jeffrey Epstein could help him um, scale uh, his idea. He wanted, you know, Bill Gates has this giving pledge where he wants all the billionaires in the world to, to pledge to give their money away and he believed that Jeffrey Epstein was the person who could really help him implement this again what so you don't what, buy that what I, well I, I want... there was clearly something about Jeffrey Epstein well it's not that I don't buy it it was that there was something Jeffrey Epstein clearly understood how power works he clearly understood how to manipulate people. And then there is this added dimension where he was clearly very close to the Israelis. We know that Ehud Barak, former Israeli prime minister, was often with him. He was also very close to the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. There was a photograph of him in his house. And he used to tell a lot of people that he was advising various African dictators. And remember, he had a home in Paris. And so there's been a lot of questions raised by ex-Mossad people that, you know, was he, you know, it seems very clear that he was part of an Israeli influence campaign, but was he also what is known in the intelligence world as a a hyperfixer, hyperconnector? These are people who are very rare, who can move between very different cultures um, and communicate uh, between, you know, you are used as a link so that these different cultures talk to each other. And, you know, what's interesting is that Ghislaine Maxwell's father, Robert Maxwell, was well known. He was part of the Israeli intelligence network and he is buried. He was given a hero's burial in the Mount of Olives mm. and he controlled most of Israel's economy at the time of his death. And he and he moved in, unlike Jeffrey Epstein, he moved in plain sight as this huge publisher, published scientific journals. And so each country that he was involved with, whether it's America, Britain, Bulgaria, Russia, Israel, were all interested to see what each country's different scientists were working on. But that there's, you know, Robert Maxwell was, um, Spy would not be the right word, but he was he was bringing intelligence to everybody. But primat, but uh, you know everybody knows that. So the question is, was there more to the friendship between Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein than just this 
horrible um, right. sex crimes. I mean, so, you know, the, the fact that we still don't know where Epstein's money came from, we still don't know which plutocrat we're going to read about next, who's, you know, I mean, no, you, you know, the, the list keeps on growing. And it's a sort of, it's bewildering because I think it speaks, it really tells you that there is, in a way, a hidden world of power. You know, we tend to think that power lies in governments um, or it lies in capitalists. But it would seem from the drips and drabs of information that we're learning about Jeffrey Epstein, that there's almost an invisible, um, there's an invisible layer of power that is in conduct, you know, that is conducted, that sort of major world events and get conducted in private rooms in big houses and that most of us have absolutely no idea about the manifestations of this and who the real players are. And I think that is um, that is the mystery of Jeffrey Epstein. Okay. Well, so, by the way, that's a very good description of everything, right? Because I, yeah, uh, this is what we will play when someone says, well, what about the Jeffrey Epstein stuff? I'll just be like, all right, clip this part to this part here and then watch that. And now that's the best that we, we have so far up to date. But... Uh, two things that I want to want to go on. I mean, uh, it's clear to most people, I would say, now, or this has sped this up. The whole, the fact of the matter is that we we feel as if power is seated in our government, in our elected officials, mm-hmm. and uh, I would say more so ever, at least in my lifetime, I feel as if people are becoming more aware that there are more power players controlling things within your government and. Uh, necessarily with your government, but with your your, your daily lives, whether that's right. in, in the private mm-hmm. private world or or not, and that I think is something that people need to be privy to if they want to have a good understanding of the worldview and also of your government. Because yeah. uh, if you're not counting on that, it's not to say that you, clearly we're not stating that elected officials have no power or that they that they you know the seat of power isn't necessarily uh, that they're detached from it. Uh, I don't believe that at all. But the fact that you don't know who else is making a decision uh, and whether or not it's in the best interest for the state, for the people, that I think is a, is a, is a massive mystery, along with uh, the part that we don't know at all where his money comes from. But it, it's clear that, I, I shouldn't say it's clear, it appears that there's also some blackmailing. It, it's clear that he he, he can manipulate. It's it, Right, it's it is except that the tapes, you know, there was always exactly what I was going to say. There was where are they? Well, that's you see, that's a great question. On my podcast, uh, there's one source who speculates that the Israelis have them, but you know, I I deliberately in the podcast because there's so many conspiracy theories around this man, I I deliberately try to to show listeners, um, be very clear with them. Here is this source. And, you know, he might be believed for this reason, but he might be disbelieved for another reason and try and let listeners make up their own mind. The same with the Discovery Plus documentary. 
you know, I very much try to to be very clear with viewers, you know, they should decide whether or not to trust the source. But, you know, one of the things that was really striking sitting in the Glenn Maxwell trial was that when the FBI raided Jeffrey Epstein's house, um, they had a search warrant. So they went in and they they took pictures of, they got into his safe, they found all these DVDs and again, they took pictures of it. What was really extraordinary was that instead of then removing it, they then had to leave the premises and go and get a different kind of warrant to then take the stuff out. In the meantime, and I'm going to I think it may have been as long as three days. They returned to the house and all that stuff is gone. It's gone. (laughs) And now they then phone, Jeffrey Epstein meanwhile is in jail, but they then phone Jeffrey Epstein's, uh, I don't think it was his lawyer, they either phoned the lawyer or the executives, you know, his accountant or lawyer, and they said, oh, yeah, we took it. No no problem. We'll now come and bring it back. Well, you know, the FBI agent testifying said, yeah, no, it, it all seemed to be exactly what we'd photographed. Seemed to be. Okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> see, you know, um, you know, so there has, there's always been this talk of tapes and where are they is a great question. That's yeah. That's just not good enough to me. I, I, yeah. I, I saw some documentary also, and I've yet to watch, watch yours, which of course works well, this is going to make it, you know, more, more personal for me, but like, uh, they just kind of skipped over it. And I understand that because there's clearly not a good answer to that, but it, it, it's too clear that we could have some answers for, Who's on these tapes? Who is being manipulated if there is something there? I mean, we've got a giant mystery that seems like a few right. key elements of it would actually just solve it. If we could just, where's this money come from? Uh, did, he, did you just pay him $160 million because you got blackmailed? Uh, well, or- oh, so let me explain the other thing, though, Will, that, that, um, that is sort of, in a way, even is more interesting than the idea of blackmail. And I'm sure that, you know, I would be amazed if Jeffrey Epstein didn't blackmail people just from what I know of his own dealings with me. Um, I mean, not that he didn't blackmail me, but he was a bully and he was manipulative Mm. and he was, you know, he was awful to deal with. But, um, but, you know, when I was reporting on him in 2002, I went to jet to a jail outside of, um, Boston in Massachusetts. And I met with um, a guy called Steve Hoffenberg, who was Jeffrey Epstein's former business partner. Hoffenberg at the time was uh, in jail for 20 years. Uh, That was his sentence for uh, committing the biggest Ponzi scheme in American history prior to Bernie Madoff. It was for $450 million. Now, what Hoffenberg told me was that Jeffrey was the mastermind of this entire Ponzi scheme, but that because Hoffenberg had pled guilty, um, it meant that Jeffrey Epstein never got, um, never had to be deposed uh, or put in front of a jury because they never had to go through a trial, which would have meant they would have had to have got discovery. What he said was that Jeffrey was the greatest con artist of all time and that he came up. He called. He had a scheme 
he basically fleeced all of the his clients um, by what he called playing the box. Playing the box meant that he essentially covered all his bases. But what Hoffenberg said to me is that Jeffrey would tell his clients, for example, you know, I think you should buy X home in the Virgin Islands or in the Caribbean. And that uh, Jeffrey would deliberately inflate the value of whatever that property or asset actually was and just take half the money. And the guy would then never be wiser, the guy or woman. I did, in my reporting, come across wealthy women whose, um, whose relatives felt that he had absolutely ruined them. And what Jeffrey Epstein relied on was the fact that rich people, when they've been robbed, and he himself told me this, when a rich person's been robbed, they don't want to go to the authorities. They just want their money back. And he realized that social embarrassment, which sounds sort of stupid to me, but maybe to you, but it's a very useful, it's a very useful way of controlling people with money. They don't want to look stupid. Uh-huh. So that's yeah. why that's why this this story is is complicated. It's much sure. more complicated than people think. And I think you know everyone talks about the girls all the time. Other than Jeffrey Epstein, there aren't. I don't believe many men who would really want to have sexual relations with a minor uh, as opposed to having sexual relations with somebody right. who is not yeah. a minor. Yeah, I right, mean, exactly. it, Jeffrey Epstein was clearly, you know, mentally ill. But I don't know. I mean, that now is it possible that he had got men? Um, he didn't tell people what the age was. But, but, you know, when you're dealing with politicians, these people, you would think... They would be careful about that stuff. Who knows? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it opens up, and I've, I've, I've been, I'm a voracious reader, I guess you could say, as well. And the subject is incredibly interesting to me, just because when you grow up in pre 9/11 days, and it's all USA is the best, and we are this, and the saviors of this, and obviously, as a really young guy, you don't look too deep into uh that um and everything has changed now with the internet and with the with stories like this and people like you that are willing to 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 ask these kind of questions uh but before i i do have one other question i'm curious the what were the circumstances regarding you even having to talk to jeffrey in 2002 back in the day and galane it was just because you guys were writing an article Mm -hmm. Because I did read the transcripts, like I said, and they are yeah. fascinating. We'll link to them down below. But what led to that? So I was pregnant um, with twins. So it was a complicated high-risk pregnancy, which meant I couldn't do too much traveling. And so, and Jeffrey Epstein's name very unusually popped up in the press. He wasn't somebody who was ever written about normally. But he had flown Bill Clinton to Africa on some charitable mission. And so I... My boss at the time said to me, you know, he lives in, Jeffrey Epstein lives in New York. You live in New York. You know, I've always wondered how he made his money go, go, you know, this should be easy for you. 
you know, because I, I write a lot about money. And um, what I didn't realize, I did already know Ghislaine Maxwell, not well. I knew her, um, she, you know, she grew up in England, as did I. She's about eight years older than me. She went to Oxford. I went to Cambridge. So there was a certain amount. She was somebody who would very occasionally show up at sort of a big party, breeze in, and she, you know, I never knew what she actually did. <clears throat> she just seemed to have a very exotic life that was involved a lot of travel. Um, and she name dropped a lot of very important people's names. And, um, you know, she was, she seemed to be very, very glamorous. Uh, she never brought Jeffrey Epstein anywhere with her. So I didn't realize until I was already into my reporting that they were, there was a connection between them. And what I kept being told was that she was in love with him, but he wasn't in love with her. And no one could quite understand why she stuck around with him because he didn't treat her very well. Um, and that he he did have an obsession for, for young sort of models, but again, couldn't find, I found one underage person and that was Annie Farmer. Um, I didn't find, you know, what, what I didn't get and more is the pity, what we now know, you know, were the dreams of underage girls that were coming to give him massages. That That people didn't, know that or if they did they didn't tell me that back in 2002 but I also so as but I got to Annie Farmer and her older sister Maria Farmer who felt that you know said that uh he'd been sexually inappropriate with her and sexually abused her um and um and on top of that I got to Steve Hoffenberg who had a great deal to say about Jeffrey Epstein's criminal financial doings and pointed me to the direction of very critical depositions that mm. there was one that Epstein had given to the SEC. There was another one that Epstein gave in a private dispute. Mm. And the more that Jeffrey Epstein realized or began to suspect that I was unearthing things about him that he wouldn't like the more threatening he became and you know this speaks to his cleverness you know i'm a pretty dogged reporter i'm pretty tenacious but my one vulnerability at that time was that i was pregnant and sure. so what he started to do was was talk to me in a very inappropriate way about my pregnancy you know discussed my vaginal canal which i really didn't need to hear oh. And, but he would threaten my, he would say, I'm going to have a witch doctor place a hex on your unborn children. And he wanted to know where I was giving birth. He told me he knew all the doctors. So he would, the implication was he would find me. And he told me he could get my husband fired because he knew my husband's boss. He told me that he was going to sue me personally if he didn't, and, and basically ruin us. And um, he became thoroughly, he told me that this was personal. I was like, you know, I'm just doing my job. He said, no, no, this is personal. This is between you and me. And it became th so unpleasant. The lawyers at Vanity Fair told me to tape him because it was, it was so unpleasant. And then when I had to put allegations to Ghislaine Maxwell about the farmers, Annie Farmer had said that 
she'd been massaged inappropriately uh, by Ghislaine. And Maria Farmer said that Ghislaine Maxwell had been in the room with her when Jeffrey um, abused her. Um, uh, you know, that was a very, very, very unpleasant conversation. You've got, you've got the transcript. Because, you know, I knew Ghislaine Maxwell and she tried to play on that, as you see in the transcript. You know, she says, well, Vicky, I mean, why would you believe two strangers over me? Okay. You know, I'm so yeah. important. And, you know, there's even a line in there. She says, well, you know, you and I are both, both journalists. And I have to say that I do remember that taking me back because I was like, I never remember Ghislaine Maxwell <laughs> being a journalist. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, but, uh, you know, as you can see from the transcript, that was a very, very, very unpleasant conversation that I had to have with her. Completely. And, completely. and obviously she denied, she denied all the allegations. Everything. As did, as yeah. did Etsy. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, obviously a transcript is a transcript. Yeah. We can't hear your voices necessarily yeah. and see the tone and things like that. But it, <clears throat> even on paper, it, it, it's, they, she has a, a modus operandi yeah. of how to handle you yeah. in this. And she's just basically going to attack your, your, yeah. your character. How could you possibly, this is absolutely absurd. Yeah. This is insane. How, um, so I should ask then too, because now we have some, somewhat of a quasi conclusion on uh what's going to happen with uh Ghislaine Maxwell I've heard many people throwing the mistrial <clears throat> word out there what what's going to happen now well it does look like the it, it does look like um there are grounds sorry what, there are grounds what was she convicted for, of so she was convicted five out of six counts um of um Aiding, you know, sex trafficking being one of them, enticement to travel, you know, enticing minors to travel and, and, and aiding Epstein in sexual abuse. And um, uh, in all but one of those counts, she was convicted. Um, but it does look like there'll be a mistrial uh, or, or there's a very strong possibility of a mistrial. We still have a ways to go. Um, uh, but a lot of the former assistant U.S. attorneys I've spoken to think that they would be shocked if there isn't a mistrial. But, you know, we'll see. Um, norm, uh, you know, the stats normally, if there is a new trial, it, 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 it actually doesn't work in favor of the defendant. Uh, oh, OK. So she won't she would she would actually it, I, it might, I didn't it, know it, it might know uh, according to. You know, I mean, this is, you know, sort of, you know, this is only anecdotal, but I'm told that uh, that usually when there's a new trial, it, it, it doesn't work in favor of the defendant. If anything, it means there's, a, there's going to be a more stringent verdict. Yeah. I mean, that's, okay. that's based on history. You don't, we don't know. Well, it's just the truth. Okay. Yeah, of course. Well, I, yeah, I didn't know that a mistrial might mean that, okay, that, the charges have to be dropped or oh, no, no, no. a mistrial would mean they have a mistrial means if, if they declared a mistrial within 75 days they have to start procedure for a new trial for a new case but what i'm okay. what i'm saying is that historically although this doesn't happen you know i mean it mixed it depends often where sometimes this is helpful for the person accused and sometimes it is not mm. sure yeah <laughs> that's yeah um 
I wanted to touch on just before, because obviously you, you wrote Kushner Inc. And I know this is a very hard turn left, uh, as we say on this on this podcast with everything there, since we can't really have a conclusion. And this is going to be a, an ongoing saga, I'm sure, for, for some time now. Uh, probably one of the mysteries of our generation here. Uh, I don't know that it's one that's going to be solved at all. Uh, and it might just go down in history as one of these JFK-like things. Um, but, uh, Kushner Inc., which I haven't even taken a step to, to dive into. I did recall reading a interesting, uh, piece on, um, Jared. Is it correct? Is he, yeah. is he Jared? The son yeah. is Jared, but his father has quite an interesting background. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, right. Which I didn't know anything about, right. and I know we don't have a whole lot of time to to go into it. But what I'm just curious, what you dove into and what you found, or if you could come up and say, "Wow, this is what really surprised me about yeah. all that." What What did you get into there? Well, look, I mean, what the basis what, what what the basis of the book is really about is this idea that it certainly appeared and it continues to appear. Um, by the way, because as we speak, the reports of Jared Kushner. Um, getting billions of dollars for his investment fund from the Saudis. Um, mm. But what what it, what what the book was really about was the very strong appearance that <clears throat> Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump went into government not for public service, but to help themselves, and um, and that really troublingly, American foreign policy was conducted primarily to save the Kushner family real estate business at great risk to uh, America's security. And I'm referring to the fact there that um, at one point, uh, I'm trying to remember, I'll make sure I get my years right, I believe it's 2017, um, the Saudis and the Emiratis, two other countries, announced a blockade of Qatar. Um, and neither the Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State Rex Tillerson had any inkling that this was about to happen. And they had just all been in Saudi Arabia for the first American state visit abroad. Jared Kushner was known to be very, very close to the Saudi crown prince. And the reason that that was so significant is that Qatar is where the US air base <laughs> is. So that is our security at, or I have a British accent, but I'm American. That is our security yeah. at risk. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a complicated story months go by and um by late spring uh american support for the blockade gets dropped um right after uh trump and the saudi crown prince have had a disagreement about money how much money the saudis are going to um pay the americans um but meanwhile the Qataris um, come to Washington, offer to help out, <clears throat> help out with the, the blockade, and and it, 
basically I explain in the book that two things happen within a very short period of time, which is that one, the US agrees to drop its support of this blockade of Qatar. And at the same time, um, Brookfield, a company that's biggest outside shareholder is the Qatari Investment Fund, bails out Charles Kushner's business, which no American, no American investor would touch. Right. It would seem such a disaster. So the optics of that are and were really, really problematic. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, then, yeah, uh, good that we can't solve that in uh, in two minutes of, of time no. speaking. But, yeah, <laughs> we will link to everything, obviously, down below. You make podcasting very easy. Having journalists on, I must say, I'm going to definitely think about having maybe just only journalists because you guys have done all the work. And yeah. so you guys are telling all these stories and you have all your facts and all the stuff. And so it makes my job very, very, very easy. So, no, but is there any place specifically if guys want to check out more on what you yeah. uh, have? Again, so my, we sub, my sub stack. So, you know, I'm doing a lot. I'm podcasting and I'm making another document. I'm producing another documentary. I'm going to write my next book. But I or streamline it all in my news my newsletter, which I uh, do twice a week on Substack. It's called Vicky Ward Investigates. So you go to Vicky Ward Investigates okay. at Substack.com, and okay. you'll you'll see. All right, then, guys, we will link all to that. Really quickly, though, you said you were working on something new. Could, are you able to, to say what you're working on? I am. I'm headed down to South Carolina to um, to report on this extraordinary story down there of a family of lawyers who held power over five counties for a hundred years. And recently um, they have been exposed as uh, crooks and the the patriarch has stolen all this money. But on top of that, his wife and his son have been killed in a brutal homicide uh, you know, and this all happened in a very rural area, very small population, and it's a huge mystery as to why and who and what is this, you know, it, it sort of feels like it's probably connected to the abuse of power that's been going on down there. So it's a sort of gothic southern mystery. Wow. Okay. Well, awesome. We will look out for that. Guys, check out everything. We have linked it down below. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's in the description box. If you're on podcast you just listen to it everything is in the show notes vicky this was awesome thanks a ton thank you so for, much for, for having me yeah yeah all right thanks well guys we'll see you later yeah see ya bye, bye.